Good morning. Good to see you today. My name is Joshua Kirst. I'm the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church. It's a joy to uh, have you with us today to worship the King together, to grow in his holy word together. If you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the letter of James, you'll find it in the back of your Bible after Hebrews and before 1 Peter. Uh, It's been a, a real joy to be teaching through this awesome letter that we find in the Holy Scriptures. We're very passionate here at Disciples Church about preaching through God's Word, letting Him lead us and instruct us and mold and shape us and mature us and grow us and sanctify us, cause us to well up with worship for Him and His holy name. It's a joy to, to be back home with you. Uh, if you were here last Sunday or, or knew that uh, I took an annual trip to Durango, Colorado, my brother's in the motorcycle club and got to do a couple thousand miles on the Harley and had a great time seeing God's country, beautiful weather. It's a lot of time to worship. I spent last Sunday on the road as I moved through New Mexico and back into Arizona just praying over you all um, as we began our trek home. So thankful for Steve, our youth director, who brought the word last week, uh, talking about our, our heart and priority for partnering with parents and discipling and raising our children in the Lord. Um, if you missed that sermon, you can catch it on the podcast and thankful for, for him and his work. Um, good to have so many of you here. Um, and ready to dig into God's Word today uh, as we continue our series called Faith at Work. Um, we reach a real critical and important part of the text here today, and I want to pray for us as we dig in. Will you join me? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You, the living God, are in this place, are at work in these lives. I know this because your word says that you are the sustainer of all things, creator, sustainer, and ruler of everything. That means that every person here today, you ordained that they would wake from their sleep, that they would be able to breathe and have their muscles work and their minds to instruct them to to be able to move about, to come to this place, to gather, to fellowship, to worship your name, to hear your holy word taught. Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing in and through us as a church and in through these people in our community as we continue uh, to labor in the things that you've called us to. It's our joy to be yours. I pray for those, Lord, who are showing up today just struggling. Um, struggling with, with sin and bitterness or unforgiveness, injustice. I pray, Lord God, that they would just see and savor you. That you would truly be their peace and their strength and their joy. Lord God, that you would work mightily in and through us as we dig into your word, that we'd have clarity for these things, these truths that you have brought forth, that we would know them and understand them and rightly apply them. Holy Spirit, bring conviction and maturity as we long to serve you with our days and make much of your holy name. We are your people and you are God. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are going to uh, enter into 
what many would say is the most central part of this letter, the letter of James. The letter of James is only found on three pages in your Bible. It is literally short, but very compact with good wisdom and truth and why we're enjoying taking our time to study it as we are and now this 14th week of this sermon series. As we enter into verse 14 through 26, I'm going to break that section up into two sermons. So we're going to do verse 14 through verse 20 today. As we see that true faith is a faith that remains. It's a faith that that works itself out. It's a faith at work. James begins in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This has been James' point all the way through his letter. It will continue to be. He's holding high what true religion, or as he referenced it a few verses ago, pure religion, or you could say true saving faith, what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. Here's a taste of what we've seen so far. In chapter 1, verse 3, when true saving faith is tested, it produces steadfastness. In verse 6, true saving faith goes to God in prayer with confidence and not with doubt. Verse 9 and 10, true saving faith is humble and boasting God and His accomplishments and not our own. Verse 19 of chapter 1, we saw James emphasize true saving faith is slow to speak and quick to hear. It's slow to anger. Verse 22, true saving faith produces lives that are doers of God's word and not hearers only. People who hear God's word and don't act, but that we do it, we live it out, we're convicted, we're mobilized, we're motivated to obey his word. Verse 26, true saving faith means a bridled tongue. Verse 27, true saving faith, or as he refers to it there, pure religion, is sacrificial ministry and love for the downtrodden and the marginalized in our community, in our world. And then in chapter 2, uh, the beginning of a, a very strong exhortation that we saw through the opening verses of chapter 2. In verse 1, true saving faith shows no partiality to others. That exterior judgment of people based on skin color or cultural status or social status or economic status is sinful. It's not of God and it's not of His people. And now in verse 14 through 26, James is going to emphasize that true saving faith is a faith at work. It shows itself, it's evidenced in one's thoughts, priorities, words, and actions. It's not just a badge on the sleeve or a one-time slogan that you proclaim. It is a lifestyle. As mentioned in chapter 1, James' audience in writing this letter are saved Jews. They're Jews who have put their faith now in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they've been dispersed, so they're away from their homes. They're going through trials and tribulations. They've 
And one of the common realities among the Jews in that culture who were either seeing, contemplating, or even claiming Christianity was that for many of them, they, they had come from extremely legalistic Judaism to the opposite extreme, many of them falling into a non-biblical antinomian application of Christianity. Antinomian means anti-law. So there's a, a thought or a process that I can believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and then have no regard for his law or his commands on my life. So we go from hyper-legalistic to oh, that's where my salvation, my acceptance, my identity comes from in following the law to overswing into an antinomian, anti-law it's because I'm saved by grace, I don't have any regard for the law. This is a problem. They replaced works righteousness with one that, with a lifestyle or a religion that produced no, lived out no righteousness. No, no good works, God-honoring works at all. The Jews in that day Are struggling with this, so he's writing them. And, and here's the good news: is is this this is something that our culture struggles with too, is it not? Don't you know people who claim faith in Jesus and 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 yet they're all about a works based lifestyle, and and it's and there's no understanding of true salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. And other people who claim Jesus and in, in false religions and. And efforts are all hung up on, I've got to perform works to be accepted by God. And then you have other people who you might know or maybe relate to yourself or seasons of your life where you just hung your hat on, on, a, on a, a prayer, a, a section of words you repeated after someone else. And they, they uh, gave you a public bath and, and then somehow you thought like, hey, that, that's all that it is. I, I have kind of checked this formal box of being saved and, and now I can just go about living my life however I want with no regard for God, no, no true God, no faith or trust in God as Lord of my life now, and to grow and mature in His ways, to live my life for Him, no regard for that. Just, uh, yeah, I'm good. I did the thing I'm supposed to do, and the rest is for naught. According to Scripture, this cannot be. The truly converted will begin to produce good works. And apart from the evidence of those good works, James would make an argument that they're not truly saved. Before we get too far into that, and what James is emphasizing here, there are pitfalls that we find in this text. There are false religions who have launched out of a misunderstanding of this text to pluck it out of its context and or to really not study it within the whole of Scripture. One of the historic protections of orthodox Christianity and what Jesus taught and what we are still to believe is that we let scripture interpret scripture. We don't let tradition inform us. We don't let our own thoughts or preferences inform us. Scripture must interpret scripture. So when we run into two things that seem to be contradicting or, or going two different directions, we have to look at those things within the whole of scripture for God's word will not contradict itself. That's not the kind of God he is and it's not the way his word works. So before we get into the text and to help us prevent from falling into any kind of pitfall that can come from a reading of this text, we must first understand that God saves by faith alone. 
Ephesians 2.8 says it so clearly, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Faith alone is all that is needed to be saved. Nothing we do or perform is good for our salvation or adds anything to our salvation. It is our faith in Christ and His perfect work on our behalf that is saving. Nothing we do or bring is good for anything in salvation. So, I want to give us a couple layers of foundation that we make sure we see faith rightly and we see that we're saved by faith alone rightly and then James' strong emphasis for what he's trying to bring forth to make sure that we see that true faith produces God-honoring works. Historically, Bible scholars have helped us understand that true saving faith and what it is by looking at three facets or elements of faith. Those are knowledge, belief, and trust. The famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon referred to them as awareness, assent, and commitment. The first, knowledge. You have to know about the object of your faith. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, great reformer, pastor, preacher, said it this way, faith without content is no true faith at all. Before I believe in, I must believe that. The Bible says it this way, Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. We must hear and take into our minds the truths of God's word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus before we can believe in it. We must have a knowledge of what it is, of who he is that we are believing in. Number two, the second facet of faith is belief. You have to believe what you now know. You can know all about God according to what the Word reveals and not know God. You can study the Bible. You can go to church every week and not be saved. Why? Because you must believe what is true about God and the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many heathens, secular professors and and great minds out there who can tell you about what the Bible says about God. They know a lot, but they don't believe it. And therefore are dead in their sin. Jesus speaks directly of this, talking about the Pharisees and teachers of the law. In Matthew 15, 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There's a knowledge and even a speaking of truths about God, but there's not belief in Him to be saved. 
an acceptance of the facts about God that one can have, an understanding of what the Bible says, and, and yet not belief that it is true. For many, this might be where you're stuck. To understand the facts, but you do not believe them to be true. So we must know the facts about God, the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God, and then believe them to be true. This is critical, critical church. And yet both of those together are still short of saving faith. If you do not trust your life to that which you now believe in. If you don't trust yourself to the God you claim you believe in, you are no different than the demons. James, in our very text, will say in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, the demons know about God, rightly, and believe those things about God to be true, but they don't trust themselves to God, therefore they're still damned. Trust. You must have a surrender of yourself to the one you believe in. Trust is committing your lives to Jesus as Lord. It's passing over the line of belonging to yourself to belonging to Jesus. You can know about God. You can say you believe that to be true. The demons do that, but they don't submit themselves to God in that facet of faith. Jesus says we are to die to ourselves. Paul says it well, to, to die to ourselves, to live to Christ. I no longer belong to myself. I belong to him. My life is his. This is true conversion. Conversion is our Holy Spirit-empowered response to the gospel call, the preaching of the gospel, to repent and believe, in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our complete trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The word conversion itself means turning, turning from sin, enslavement to sin, that's repentance, turning to Jesus as Lord of our lives. That's faith. Very famous scripture, maybe the most famous scripture in all of scripture, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A scripture that's been butchered and misapplied for generations. Here John uses a surprising phrase in that he does not simply say whoever believes him. The demons believe him. But they don't trust themselves to him. He says whoever believes in him. The word in there in the Greek is the word s. It means in two. You would better read that, that passage to say whoever believes into him. When we actually dig into the words whoever believes, it, it, it better says all the believing 
into him will never perish but have eternal life. It's less of an invitation as we treat it and more of a statement of proclamation. God so loved the world that the perfect son of God took on flesh, came and gave his life in the place of undeserving sinners that all those who are believing into him, trusting their lives to him will never perish but have eternal life. God's command on all people is to repent of sin and self and to believe or trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, walk with this through me. It's an important clarity. While the action of repentance and belief is ours, No one does it for you. You do that. The power and the motivation to do it is not ours. It is a gracious gift of God. And the clearest place we see this in Scripture is back to that Ephesians 2, 8 passage. Let me include verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace. You did not deserve it. He was not obligated to do it. You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. That believing in God is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. In other words, there is no part of your salvation that you get to claim credit for. All of it is the work of God. It's a gift of God in and through you. You won't stand before him on judgment day and say, thank you for all this that you did, and I'm really glad that I did my part, as if I have before the holy God something to boast in. You will not. You will joyfully fall on your face before God with nothing to offer in your salvation, but to purely and fully rely on the perfect work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, in your place, as your propitiation, as Leslie read earlier, as your mediator, as the sacrificial substitutional atonement in your place. You will have nothing to boast in. It will be all God. This is why I encourage our congregation often to say, in telling your story of of how you were saved, stop telling people the day you accepted Jesus. That's a story about what you did. And start telling them the story about the day that God saved you. It's a story about what he did. You were an enslaved, wretched, dead sinner. By the grace of God, he gave you new birth, eyes to see and savor the gospel, to repent of sin and believe in him. Even that faith is a gift. I say all this to help us understand rightly That there is nothing we do or perform that merits or earns salvation, even in the believing. All that we do or believe or trust in in our salvation is a gift of God, a work of God in and through us. The scriptures say our works prior to Christ are best. Your best humanitarian work, you could give a million dollars, you could give your life away. Anything you could give, people are like, wow, well, look how sacrificial that is. That our best works, apart from Christ, are like soiled menstrual rags. That's the quality of the works, the good works we bring to the table in sin. 
It's meant to be stark. It's meant to be gross, to make its point that it's good for nothing. We are desperate for the perfect work of Jesus. This is why we sing, church. This is why we savor him. Because I have nothing I bring. We are saved by faith alone. Not faith and works like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Not faith and work like Jehovah's Witness teaches. And, and many other false religions and false teachings. This is a critical, foundational, fundamental clarity of doctrine that the Holy Word teaches. It is one of the, one of the five central pillars of the Protestant Reformation by which the Reformers died for it, by which changed the church in our, in our history to reform from the misguided heresy of how the Roman Catholic Church had created man-made traditions to come back to biblical principles. And one of those pillars was faith alone, sola fide. Let me read you a quick definition of that, of that main pillar of the Reformation. Justification by faith alone emphasizes that a person is justified in the sight of God by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. This means God credits Christ's righteousness to a person based on faith alone and not any effort will merit work or deeds in and of that person. This saving faith is a gift of God that follows regeneration and is the effective cause of justification. That we're declared justified by his works, not ours. Furthermore, it is a salvation by faith alone, but it is not a faith that remains alone. Now here's where we get to what James is emphasizing so critically in our passage today. One cannot mix work and saving faith for justification, but true saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will produce a life of obedience and good works and progressive sanctification unto the glory of God. Church, it is essential, essential, essential that you see and understand that faith alone in Christ's perfect work on our behalf and apart from any work we perform is the only way we're saved. We do not offer any worthy works to bring about our salvation. So as we talk about the, the essential reality of works that follow saving faith today, you must not walk away and hear me say, that it is by faith and works that we are saved. That is not what the Bible teaches. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? With that under our feet, hear now James 2.14 again. He's loving his audience, but he's bluntly saying, what good is it? What good is it, brothers, beloved? If someone says he has fruit, but does not have works, can that faith save him? You could read that naively and say, he's saying that it's faith and works that save you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that True faith is going to produce true good and God-honoring works. And without the evidence of that, 
what you have back here is not true faith. True faith, let me say it this way, does not remove the need for good works. It makes them actually possible. By the power of God to set the enslaved man free, to obey God because of the perfect work of Christ in his place, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that now indwells the believer. To say it most succinctly, you could, you could, you could hear it this way and write it down. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith does not remain alone. If there are no God-honoring works that follow saving faith, then that faith is not saving what the Scriptures will call it is superficial. What James says here is what good is it for? That, that belief you claim, if it doesn't produce true good works and the evidence of changed life, God didn't save you. It's not good for anything. James will say in the next few verses that that faith that you claim that has no works behind it is dead. Look with me at verse 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James jumps right into an example of a person who claims faith, is willing to speak spiritual things, but the transformation of Christ in and through them is not, is not at work to selflessly love them, to care for them. It doesn't extend the love and grace that we've been shown, thereby proving that the faith that we claim is superficial and not saving. James' point is here to say, true faith will show the fruit of the Spirit. It will produce a lifestyle of sacrificial love and work that you didn't do prior to being saved. True faith will find its way into action. It will show the evidence of being born again by God. If a person's belief has no evidence of spiritual new birth or regeneration, is what we call that, which then produces the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of conviction for sin and maturity and faith and sanctification, if there's no evidence of that, then what you have back here is not saving faith. It is a faith that is good for nothing, he says. Four times James makes this emphasis in this section. Look with me at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Okay? Verse 17, by faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. If there's any part of the sermon where you feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again, it's because he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. For the sake of the fact that we need it. <laughs> Praise God for his wisdom, to help us understand these truths. To not just be flippant and go, yeah, yeah, I get it, move on. But to really get it. Let it wash over us. Let, us equip, let it equip us to the ability where we can, we can speak correctly about these things to those that we love or those who come to our door. 
those that we're training up. James is saying faith or belief in God is dead. It's fake. It's superficial if it doesn't do anything. If it doesn't act. If it doesn't obey him. If it doesn't go to work. It's like saying you trust something or someone, but you don't actually trust them. Can you say you trust something, but not actually trust it? Absolutely. We do it all the time. One of my favorite illustrations I've said for years, those of you who have been with me a long time know it well, and that's good. I pray that it's an encouragement and even an example you would use. For those of you who are newer to my preaching, it will hopefully be refreshing for you. It's a famous old tightrope walker by the name of Blondin. He would gather huge crowds who would come to see him walk the tightrope. He was amazing. He could lay down, he could jump, he could do all these things, carry these things, perform tasks out on the tightrope over immense, just huge, gaping chasms and Niagara Falls and in these amazing places. One time, historically, filled a wheelbarrow and rolled it out over the, 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 the cable and successfully got to their side, just full of hundreds of pounds of weight. And, and cried out to the cheering audience that day, how many of you believe a person could climb in the wheelbarrow and I could successfully wheel them across the cable? And the crowd went crazy. Yeah, yeah. They're nudging each other. Hey, this is going to be epic. Can't wait to see this. So excited. Yeah, do it. We, yes, absolutely you can do it. His next question was, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And every hand went down. Do they really believe he could do it? Or would do it? Not if they're not willing to get in the wheelbarrow. Do you, do you believe in God or in what Jesus did in such a way where with your life you haven't got in the wheelbarrow to trust it all to him? You've said just enough Put just enough of what you think about Christianity in your pocket, in your practice, to be to feel like you've got that fire insurance. But your life is not sold out to the Son of God as king of your life. You're still essentially standing on the side as a spectator saying, yeah, yeah, I believe. But there's no evidence of that belief at work. There is a new birth that happens by God in our lives to all whom He gives true saving faith. It causes us to no longer do only sin as we did in our enslavement to sin prior to salvation and selfish things, but it gives us now the power to glorify Him and to honor Him with our lives, with our thoughts, with our actions, with our priorities. James 2, 15 through 16, see it with me. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? Our faith in God means we will give our lives away for Him. We will love others sacrificially. We will live differently. And there will be evidence of this. 
In, in Matthew chapter 25, 41 through 46, Jesus says this so well. He, he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. A very sobering statement. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus, who is God, who knows all that is, is speaking of what he will say to many, many professed faith in Jesus but had no real conversion and no real ongoing sanctification and fight against sin and growth and maturity and the word and discipleship. The evidence of those works at play. The word of God is clear again and again that the person who claims spiritual faith but does not bear the fruit of the Spirit in word and deed is not saved. They do not know God. They are not reconciled to Him. The true evidence of saving faith is faith at work in good deeds that honor God and sacrificially serve others. I pray you hear James in this vital clarity he's giving us today. It is not true saving faith to claim you have faith, but then do not live by faith in God with your words and deeds. James says that faith is dead. For someone to say they believe but then not show evidence of trusting God with their life or actions. Or for another person to say, I said the sinner's prayer in 1974, and I'm so I'm good, but, but, but God shows no real fruit of the Spirit in their life, no real or ongoing repentance from sin, but continues to practice sin, not real trust of God or His promises that He gives us here to carry out in our lives, no real obedience and conviction for God's word. I, James is making it clear that this is not saving faith. Again and again and again, the scriptures will say that true saving faith produces a changed life, a transformed life. Does it mean in that new birth, everything's perfect and you're mature and everything's good? No. But, but, but there's a growth, there's a maturity, that there's, there's an opportunity to, to, to savor him and, and, and to ask questions and to fight sin and to bring forth the body of Christ and to, to mature in the word of God. To see priorities change and convictions for why we do what we do change in a way that now honors him. And we see this reality play out again and again and again in the scriptures Sadly, many of you have not seen or heard this many times because you've maybe been in pulpits or in churches where they, we don't preach through the Word of God like this, but it, it is all over. Jesus spoke of superficial faith that is not saving again and again and again. Let me give you a couple quick 
examples of this in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So many people say they believe Jesus is doing these signs. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Let me ask you, if someone says they're a child of God, redeemed by God, believe in God, but Jesus does not entrust himself to you, is that person saved? No. They're claiming something they don't have. He knows all people, needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. We see a proclaimed faith in Jesus, but clearly no new birth, according to what is testified. Jesus has not given himself to them. Apart from new birth and saving faith, they will remain in their sin unto eternal death. This is the result of superficial faith, death. You flip to John chapter 6. That was John 2. Let me show you in John 6. Jesus says very clearly in, in verse 63 through 70, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Hear that. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Not surprised by the betrayal of Judas or those who would turn their back on him. As he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, people who had committed to following him, turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now he turns to the twelve disciples. Do you guys want to go away as well? He knows the people who have left have superficial faith. He knows who of the twelve have true faith and who has superficial faith. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter and 11 others of the 12 would remain faithful, would grow in sanctification to produce good works, proving their salvation to be true, their election to be true, God's work in their life to be true. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? That being Judas, who would prove to not have had true faith in Jesus, but superficial faith or following like these other disciples who had left. See that there are many who claim to believe in Jesus in a superficial way while it seems to suit their needs or the season of life they're in. They're kind of adding a little religion, enjoying the signs he's performing, enjoying whatever they feel like they're getting from it. They don't really love God, have trusted themselves to God. Follow him for a season, but eventually turn their back and walk away. This is not new birth. This is not saving faith. God will lose none of those whom he has saved. To say that one can truly be saved and lose their salvation is to not understand the scriptures. It is to declare that Jesus had an effort to save someone and he lost them. That's to say that we are more powerful than him. That's to say that Jesus bled for people who would not 
eventually be covered by his atonement. That is not the God we serve, who is perfect in all of his ways, who scripture testifies he will lose none of whom he elects and saves and brings near. Anyone who has said to proclaim saving faith in Jesus, maybe even lived a good season of their life, but completely turned their backs on him, completely walks away from the faith, proves to not have lost their salvation to an impotent God, but proves to have never been saved, to truly never have saving faith, but superficial faith. A faith that Jesus and James are speaking of is dead. They did not show enduring fruit and God-honoring faithfulness. The faith they claimed is superficial, therefore it's dead. James continues in verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Jesus repeatedly emphasized that true saving faith was more than intellectual acceptance but a life transformed to produce fruit that honors God. In line with what James is saying here, that I will show you my faith by my works, by the fruit of the tree that I now am. You can't claim to be a tree that belongs to God, but then not produce fruit that honors God. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 6 through 16 through 20, You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is what James is saying. If truly saved and have saving faith, it will be evidenced by the fruit or the work in my life. Does that mean perfection? No, it doesn't mean perfection, but it means ongoing maturity and growth, conviction, endurance. These things that James is lifting high in this letter again and again. And maybe the most sobering, most direct statement Jesus makes on this topic. Jesus himself saying, Pastor, wow, this one's heavy. It is. But here, this is not me. This is Jesus. This is James. This is the Word of God. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That there is an evidence you are to look for in a true believer that does the will of the Father. The one who claims Lord, Lord, but has no evidence is standing on superficial faith that many one day will come to the most horrific moment in their lives to face eternal judgment, having hung their hat on something that's man-made and superficial. Hear me clearly today. The evidence of true faith in God is God-honoring works. The fruit of the Spirit at work in your life, the, that you are saved by faith alone, but faith that does not remain alone, it goes to work. This is why James is emphasizing here in verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. 
Verse 19, we come back to the verse I referenced earlier, James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James goes so far to make his point by comparing the person who claims faith in God without any changed evidence of God honoring fruit and works is no different than the demon who believes in God but does not know God or trusts his life to God. Therefore, his belief is not saving. It is just knowledge it is not evidence to new birth and sanctification that follows new birth. So you can say it this way. Demon faith. This is the point James is making. This is sobering. Hear it, hear it another way. Demon faith is belief that Jesus is God. So one can claim Jesus is God. And it's not enough. And he's able to do all that he desires. The, the demons shuddered. They feared the power of God, the Son, before them. They knew and they believed what he said about himself to be true, but they did not trust themselves to him, and therein lies the difference. Demon faith believes that Jesus is God and able to do all that he desires, but saving faith is a belief that causes you to die to yourself and submit your entire life and priorities to God and his word. There's the difference. You can say all day that a certain regimen of medication will cure your terminal disease. But it is another thing to sell all you have to buy that medication and commit to taking that medication under its completion no matter what it takes. No matter what it costs you. No matter how hard it gets. To just say you think it will do what it claims But not to put your life on the line for it is not to have the healing benefits of what it does for you. The demons perfectly illustrate that profession of belief alone is bankrupt if anything saving of anything saving if it's not a belief gifted by God to those whom he chooses to save, and then proves itself by real God-honoring works and faithfulness in Him to the end. That's the teachings of Scripture again and again and again and again. The demons knew who Jesus was. They feared Him. They shuddered. Do you realize that the demons have better belief and faith in God than many of us in different seasons of our life before we were saved or people you know and love? They actually tremble at his power and presence. But they do not trust themselves to him. Luke 4, 33-34. In the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. This is the profession of a demon who will not be saved. True belief must be of God and unto true trust in Him with all of your life. And it will show itself with a lifelong devotion and growing righteousness of God-honoring works. Church, true belief 
must be of God and unto true trust in him with all your life. It will show itself in these ways. It will not stay alone. It will not be satisfied to be disconnected from God, his word, and his people. It will not be settled with a mere profession of faith. It will show itself in good works. This is why James is saying, I will show you my faith by my works. So Christian, make it personal for you today. You must not let this casually just move by you. If you claim salvation in Jesus Christ, it means you belong to him. Oh, praise God. It means you long for him. You live for him. You prioritize your life for him. His word, his church, the work entrusted to us for his glory. It means when you're confronted with sin in your life, from his word, you confess it as sin and you turn to a new path that honors him. It doesn't matter what it costs you or what it changes in your plans or in your preferences. You belong to God. You walk by faith and you trust in Him. You believe that His way is best. It doesn't matter how hard it is, how confusing it might be, or how much you don't understand what it will cost you. You're in. You're His. You will walk by faith and not by sight. James 2.20, close with this. Do you want to be shown, he says, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. I love you. Can I tell you the answer is no. I don't want to be shown that I am a foolish person to believe that somehow faith apart from works is saving Faith alone, I'm saved. That faith produces a life of works. That's what he's speaking of. James is direct to bring stern warning to the foolish person that will be shown that faith apart from works is useless or dead. It is not true faith in God. It is man-made. It is not the perfect work of God to give you saving faith that changes your life and produces fruit and matures you in progressive sanctification. It is man-made religion. It is hanging your hat. No, better. It is hanging your life. No, better. It is hanging your eternal life on a superstition. May everyone who can hear my voice heed this warning today. See clearly that a casual proclaimed faith in God without a life of evidence of repentance of sin and growth in Christ is dead faith. That's God's words in His holy word. That's not some clever sermon title I came up with. It was never saving. It is not alive. It is useless. It is deception. It is foolish. How I pray we would not be satisfied with the, the gross pitch of casual Christianity that floods the streets of Bakersfield and the modern culture we live in. People by the thousands drinking the Kool-Aid of this thing that is not the gospel. 
It's not changing marriages and families and redeeming and growing and causing us to fight sin and move away from it. It is a superficial thing we wrap ourselves up in. (laughs) It breaks my heart. May our faith be shown, be evidenced, be proven by our works. Does that mean we'll be perfect? By no means. We will struggle with sin. We'll fight it all the time. But true faith will confront it. We'll beg for help to confront it if need be. We'll repent from it. and We'll mature and grow from it. And you might be saying today, well, what if, what if I don't? What if that's not me? And I would say keep coming and keep hearing the gospel preached unto God giving you true saving faith that will produce that. Either way, you need to keep being in church, keep being around God's people, keep studying God's word, either under conviction of repentance. And can I just say that that, that's the testament of many people in our church. Praise God. People who thought what they had and what they were doing and their kind of just flow and practice of Christianity and religion was, was good and right and normal. And yet there's this light coming on, this conviction of the Lord in our lives to make war with the things of our flesh and to lean in and get plugged in and to grow and to sit under sound teaching and to get around people that can help disciple you and walk with you and help you mature and families and raising our kids and just taking every day God gives us so seriously and it it just being our joy to be His, to walk in the body of Christ and belong and to be known (laughs) Like I said earlier, I'll say it again and again because he says it again and again. One more time. According to Scripture, a person who professes Christ as Lord and Savior, but who does not live a Christ-honoring, Christ-obeying life, proves to be a counterfeit, a fraud. And the faith they claim is dead. It's not living. It's not saving. Yeah, at the end of the day, only God knows our heart. That is true. But he has given again and again in his word these things to understand that we love those who hang their hat on that stuff enough to preach the gospel and reorient them to the truth of God. The worst thing we could do is get him close enough to kind of put our arm around him and say, oh yeah, you're good. And yet the word of God says otherwise. And maybe that's you today. And I pray that just simply you would confess your sin and trust your life to Jesus I'm so not worried about what you've done to this point, but what you will do today, and if he gives you tomorrow, and if he gives us next week, or ten more years, or a lifetime. To those who are true believers, to those who Paul emphasizes are God's workmanship, who are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Church, may we walk in them this week. May we cling to him, be desperate for him in the most amazing way, and worship him with our thoughts, our words, our actions, our deeds. And we long to do this with you. Pray with me, and let's praise him with song. Jesus, God, we thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing, for the work that you've done in and through us today.
in your word, the opportunity you've given us to study and to, to hear this section of your holy word and to be confronted with these truths, that it would bring conviction and repentance and greater belief and trust and obedience in you. That we would put to action these things, that we would love those in our lives enough to to point them to these scriptures and call them out of their what looks to be evident superficial faith to return to a commitment to the body and to the word and to growing in Christ and being accountable to the brethren and sitting under the authority of pastors to, to grow and be the body to fulfill the great commission to raise up a generation of the children and grandchildren you've entrusted to us for your holy purposes and glory and you are saving many as you know I've been praying this day as the word is preached around the world that many would be saved by your grace for your eternal glory, for their eternal good. Pray against the proprietors and the and the and the um, the preachers of false gospels, of watered down Christianity, feels good to the masses and yet does not bring forth the power of the Word of God. There be real conviction and repentance that we, your church, would would speak of these truths, would would meet the, the true needs of those who are hurting around us and love them sacrificially. That you'd mature us in good works and growing sanctification, obedience to you and well us up with worship for you, the one true God. As we leave this place, God, that it wouldn't be about us, but it would be about you. It would be about the name of Jesus to well up in our lives and our thoughts and our, in our words and our actions, but, but in our testimony, the name of Jesus would go forth. And you and your sovereign will and power would bring forth new life and conviction from sin. And the name of Jesus would go forth and raise up new churches and among new people groups around the world and, and change lives forever. And so we conclude this time just to center ourselves and focus ourselves on the name of Jesus to worship you as God. We are yours and we love you. And here we are. In Jesus' name we pray.